Welcome to the Old Testament Reading Podcast. I'm your host, Joel, and today we're focusing on Numbers 20 through 25. You can find and subscribe to this podcast using Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. All the links you can find in the show notes. If questions come up during the course of your reading, please ask them. Uh, I have a Google Form website that you can go to at bit.ly slash capital A lowercase sk hyphen capital O capital T. Once again, that's bit.ly slash ask hyphen OT. I'd love to hear your questions and I'd love to speak to them during the podcast. Before we get into thinking about our reading for this week, uh, a friend of mine, Jack L., asked an important question that has stymied scholars and other students of scripture for some time, and I thought we'd start with that. Here's his question. He says, Just an observation, the image of the Israelites wandering in the wilderness during the book of Numbers seems at odds with the requirements of the sacrifices God directs them to make. A nomadic tribal existence would seem to conflict with the ability to cultivate crops and vineyards, which require staying in one place. These crops would be required for grain offerings and drink offerings. From manna to excess grain for offerings and quail to abundance of rams, sheep, goat, bulls, etc. for sacrifice, that all seems to suggest an advancing and stable agricultural community existing. Just a thought. And... Jack, this is a really important question. In addition to this, archaeologists have not found nearly enough animal remains or human remains in the in, in the uh, vein of skeletons or whatnot to account for the over two million Israelites wandering the wilderness for forty years that the text describes. There are hosts of concerns with the hard truth details of the wilderness narratives. Uh, In addition to some of the concerns that you brought up about an advancing and stable agricultural community existing. Now, for some readers of scripture, this information feels threatening. If we entertain the idea that some of the details of the biblical narrative might not be historically accurate, well, what if this means the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus isn't historically accurate? Put another way, uh, for some readers of scripture, if the Bible can't be fully trusted everywhere, it can't be fully trusted anywhere. But as, as tempting as this is for readers of scripture in our modern context to read scripture this way, it wasn't how the Hebrews thought of their scriptures, and it isn't fair for us to put that expectation on a cultural document like the Hebrew Bible, that's expecting the Hebrew Bible to conform to standards and assumptions we make as Westerners. And it's much more, uh, we'd be much more successful at reading the Hebrew Bible if we tried to read it through Hebrew eyes instead of through Western eyes. Now, we can get at some of this by thinking of origin stories. We see origin stories all the time, particularly with the resurgence of comic book movies in the last couple decades. Uh, Spider-Man comes to mind as one character who has seen an origin story get retold four separate times over the course of the last two decades. Uh, Three times, uh, Peter Parker is the Spider-Man, and once in the Into the Spider-Verse animated movie, great movie by the way, uh, Miles Morales is the Spider-Man. And yet... It's not a question that we really ask 
uh, you know, asking which is the real origin story. That's not the point of the Spider-Man origin story. The point is to offer not a scientific explanation for how this superhero came to be, but to do something way more important, to convey the values, the purpose, the vision of Spider-Man. And we see this in all sorts of origin stories, like how we imagine the founding of America, whether that's through plays like Hamilton or through the the values we emphasize, like liberty and justice for all. In the same way, the first five books of the Bible are not intended to communicate scientific facts. That's not their purpose. That wasn't what they were written for. It wasn't what the story was told for, because this story has roots in oral tradition. What this story was told for is to communicate the values, purpose, and vision of a people that has been specially chosen and liberated from bondage by God. This is Israel's origin story. And while not everything contained therein is necessarily scientifically or historically true, it's all, I guess I would say, capital T true, in the sense that it accurately conveys those things of most importance to the people. It communicates their values, their purpose, and their vision. So with this in mind, I think that what we can glean glean from the numbers narrative is primarily Israel's dual nature. On the one hand, there's great potential in Israel. As the chosen people of God, they can dedicate themselves to the service and worship of God in a deeper and more profound way than can any other people on the face of the earth. We see this in their carefully orchestrated sacrificial system. And whether this was a system that was fully formed during their time in the wilderness, given from on high to Moses from God, uh, and, and, and whether it was followed during their time in the wilderness, well, I think that's uh, less important than the fact that it's such a key piece of who they are that it was woven into their origin story. It was so important that it needed to be there. On the other hand, in Numbers, we see Israel never living up, never fully living up to its potential. We see this in their regular grumbling and moaning and murmuring that sets the tone for their wilderness wanderings. Over and over again, God's people will swing between their potential and their reality. And this is true for Israel and also for us today. Yes, God has conquered sin and death, has shown us how to live in Jesus Christ, offering us the potential for abundant life. And yet, so frequently, we fail to live up to our potential, preferring the easier road of conforming to the world's pattern, to the pattern of that which surrounds us. So, Jack, this is a really long answer to your question, um, but you're right to notice the disconnect here. Conceivably, God could have provided what was necessary for the sacrificial system to function while the Israelites were wandering in the desert. However, no evidence of this exists. Now, absence of evidence doesn't imply evidence of absence. There have been a number of other biblical stories where there has been an absence of evidence until there wasn't, until archaeologists found evidence. But whatever the case, the story of Numbers continues the origin story of Israel and indicates through its narrative and its laws what values, purposes, and vision holds sway over the children of Israel. And Jack, if I didn't answer your question uh, uh, to the way that you were hoping, please uh, give me an email or, or put in another question. Um, I would appreciate that.
getting into this week's reading, Israel shows in a variety of ways how it has great potential for service to God. Israel also shows how it regularly fails in its mission to be God's light to the nations. On the one hand, potential. On the other hand, reality. And we begin in Numbers 20, which is a chapter of some tragedy for Moses. Not only do the people continue to grumble against him as usual, but he also begins the chapter mourning the loss of his sister Miriam. Perhaps in his grief, Moses begins to rely on his own power and authority instead of God's. And this could be why, instead of speaking to the rock as God commands, he strikes the rock with his staff. In Exodus 17, we've got a similar story in which God commands Moses to strike a rock with a staff, so this is not like beyond the realm of possibility. But in this story, that wasn't what God commanded Moses. So we have to ask, well, why did Moses do this? Perhaps Moses is trusting in what worked before. Um, that, you know, like, like a good Presbyterian, Moses says, well, that's not the way we've done it before, God. Alternatively, perhaps Moses would like to establish his own authority by bringing forth water himself without seeming to depend on God. Uh, this is, is buttressed by the idea that the Hebrew word for staff connotes authority, leadership, ruling, and that by using his staff, Moses might be attempting to communicate to the people that he's in charge despite the loss of his sister, that he's holding it together, that they can trust him. This doesn't work, however. Um, well, it does work. It does make water spew forth. But Moses and Aaron, because of this action, are not invited to go into the promised land. This is the one error that Moses makes, relying on his own power instead of God's. Now, after an unsuccessful attempt at diplomacy with Edom, who, remember, Edom was, was descended from Jacob's twin brother Esau, the Israelites decide not to engage with the Edomite army, and they instead go around the territory controlled by Edom. If you have a map in the back of your Bible, uh, this is an excellent time to start referring to it. And if you don't have a map in the back, and sometimes they put them in the front, uh, I'd, I invite you to, to find one online, and I will try to link one in the show notes as well, so that you can visualize some of Israel's uh, possible travel plans. Um, this it, It's all... We don't, of course, have a map from that day and age, so a lot of it is guesswork, but you can at least see how scholars have put together some ideas of how Israel may have traveled. So they, they go around the territory controlled by Edom, and then they mourn Aaron, who dies. And Aaron leaves his son Eliezer to be the new high priest. And I think that this is one of the dangerous portions of the journey for the Israelites. We will see not only Aaron die, but uh, in Deuteronomy, Moses will be gathered uh, to his ancestors in death. And we'll see Joshua have to succeed Moses like Eliezer succeeds Aaron. And whenever there's a transfer of power, a passing of the baton, the question is, can there be a full, complete, and peaceful transfer of power to the next generation? Will the Israelites trust those who their leaders have chosen to succeed them. And while we don't hear much about Eliezer, his son, later on in our reading, will prove himself a zealous priest. As it stands in chapter 20, however, it isn't immediately clear that this transition will be easy or successful. The Israelites mark Aaron's death by 30 days of mourning. So despite Aaron's failure with the golden calf, he was much beloved. After Aaron's death, the Israelites begin to engage with the Canaanites who live in the Promised Land. 
And initially, Israel does well at living up to its potential, depending not on their own strength, but on God's strength to attain victory, dedicating all of the booty that they receive, all of the, the spoils of war, to God. The, uh, the, the Hebrew here uh, literally means to cause the towns and their inhabitants to be devoted to God. Some translations will render this as putting all of the towns and their inhabitants under the ban. Um, practically speaking, it means that Israel must depend on God for protection in life because they will be burning the spoils of war. They will be burning down the towns. They will be uh, putting to the sword all of the inhabitants of, of these towns. Now, in this narrative and in future narrative, there will be con some concerns uh, that it will be right to raise about genocide and what sort of God could morally command this genocide. I, I'd invite you to keep this question in your mind as we continue reading. We won't deal with it so much in, in this week's reading. We've got other things we need to deal with. But this is a complicated situation. Uh, is it right for God to command genocide? A question to ponder. There's another round of complaining leading to serpents coming among the Israelites. And, and these may be fiery serpents, poisonous serpents, whatever they are, it's unclear from the Hebrew. Uh, whatever the case, though, they aren't friendly. Many of the people who are bitten end up dying. Moses takes one of these serpents or makes one out of bronze and puts it on a pole, on a standard, so that the rest of the Israelites might look on it and live. Now, this is a strange story, and it gets a lot more important and profound when Jesus references it in John 3 drawing an analogy between what Moses does for the Israelites and what Jesus intends to do for the world. It's such a captivating story that the snake around a cross or around a pole has become a universal symbol for first aid. Uh, you can see that if you're part of Blue Cross Blue Shield uh, or, or that sort of uh, health insurance network. You can also see it sometimes on uh, uh, the Red Cross symbol. Um, there's a, a snake wound around a pole. The rest of the chapter shows the victories piling up for Israel with poetic interludes describing the terror the nation of Israel and their god Yahweh have inflicted on the surrounding nations. It's fun if you've got the time to check out different translations of some of these poems and some of, some of Balaam's prophecies because the Hebrew is remarkably complex. Um, many translations will render them in vastly different ways, uh, and it's interesting to get a window into the uh, complex nature of the Hebrew. Now, it's in this string of military dominance that Balak, the king of Moab, begins to seek assistance for dealing with Israel. His territory, after all, is next on the chopping block to fall to the Israelites. So enter Balaam, a powerful pagan prophet who was known widely in the ancient Near East as a soothsayer and a seer. In fact, there's some archaeological evidence dating from the 8th century before Christ that suggests Balaam was very well known. But this seer has trouble seeing exactly what he wants to see, what Balaam asks him to see concerning the people of Israel. Now, initially, God forbids Balaam to go with Balak, telling him that the Israelites are a blessed people. But when Balak's men persist, God relents, allowing Balaam to travel with them, provided he say only what God tells him. Evidently, this wasn't Balaam's intention, since God sends an angel to obstruct his path. Now, there's a pun in the Hebrew throughout this entire episode. The word for seer, like in English, 
looks a lot like the word for to see. The powerful seer could not see that which was directly before him, that which his donkey saw, that from which his donkey protected him. The, the narrative almost prompts us to ask, who's the true seer here? Is it the donkey or is it the man? And, and, and the text communicates this understanding that only God can cause someone to see clearly, even one having authority, uh, like a professional pagan seer has. God has authority over what he can see and what he can't see. Now this, along with Genesis 3 and the serpent and the garden, is one of the only places in scripture when an animal speaks. And it's encouraging to hear that God uses a donkey. I've said this more than once, that if God can speak through a donkey, God can use my words also. So Balaam prophesies, and Balak is understandably dismayed. He brought Balaam in to curse the Israelites, but Balaam blesses them instead using strong, elevated language. In Balaam's prophecies, we see Israel's full potential. And isn't this usually the case, that an outsider can sometimes more accurately evaluate the strengths of individuals or organizations than insiders can? I think maybe through having less skin in the game, outsiders can cut through some of the inaccurate assumptions that insiders make. And I think that's why it's so important for the church to listen eagerly to feedback we, we receive from those who are not churched. And, you know, if we feel ourselves getting defensive when someone critiques our church community, we might take that as a sign that they're pointing something out that we need to look at. As God's people, we are not immune from error. And, and because we will in fact be held to a higher standard uh, that, that the New Testament teaches that we will be judges, we will judge angels, well, we need to hold ourselves to a higher standard. We know the good we ought to do. And we're going to see next week how Balaam uses his insight into Israel to probe a weak spot in Israel's uh, defenses, you could say, in Israel's morals. Now remember, God's spirit can speak through anyone, a donkey, a pagan prophet, whomever. And I think the story of Balaam helps us to remember to separate the message from the messenger, to evaluate the message on its own terms, instead of rejecting the message because the messenger is somehow untrustworthy. And as people who are churched, sometimes I, I, I've seen this happen uh, where we dismiss messages because they come from untrustworthy sources instead of evaluating the message itself on its own merits. And it's, it's also because of Balaam and Balaam's, uh, Balaam's story that I desire to work with other congregations and other Christians who hold theological views, even those I strongly disagree with. In spite of our disagreement, God's Spirit can work through us both, and God's Spirit can shine a light in a way that neither of us could have predicted. However, there are times when we need to be direct and unyielding, holding up a standard of truth and a standard of right moral behavior that cannot be compromised. We see this in our final chapter this week, Numbers 25. Immediately after we read about the potential of Israel, we're plunged into the messy reality of life with Israel, a reality in which they're tempted toward idolatry. Now remember, 
in the Hebrew Bible, idolatry and adultery go hand in hand. They're closely linked because fidelity to God and fidelity to others are also closely linked. How we treat God influences how we treat people and vice versa. And throughout the entire Hebrew Bible, the issue of intermarriage, that is an Israelite marrying a non-Israelite, is complex. We see this, uh, this wrestling in the story of Ruth and the story of Esther. We see this wrestling in uh, how Ezra d- declares to the Israelites that they shouldn't intermarry and, and how Solomon is uh, corrupted in part by his intermarriage. Um, but we also see that uh, Moses' wife, Zipporah was a Midianite. Um, Yet on the other hand, in this passage, the Midianites who the Israelites were building relationships with worshipped the Baal of Peor. Quick note about Baal here. Sometimes you'll hear this pronounced Baal. Uh, That's the the proper Hebrew pronunciation, Baal. But most of us Westerners will say Baal. Baal literally means Lord and can sometimes mean husband in Hebrew. Uh, There's a deep sense of God's husbanding uh, their people. And Baal was sort of the up-and-coming hot new god, the god of the storms uh, at this point. Uh, And it was also, Baal was also a god of fertility. Um, We may talk more about Baal uh, later on when we get into the kings, because Baal is a constant uh, stumbling block for the Israelites. But at this point, the Baal of Peor is who they begin to be attracted to along with these Midianites. And as God's people, when our relationships drive us away from worshiping and serving God alone, those relationships must be reevaluated. And and I think that's why intermarriage is such a complicated issue, because sometimes intermarriage can draw us deeper and deeper into relationship with God. But often that's not the case. And in this situation, many of the Israelites were smitten, so much so that even after God and Moses command a gruesome punishment for the chiefs of the people who've begun worshiping Baal, a high-ranking Israelite brings a high-ranking Midianite into the camp for intimate relations. Phinehas, who's the son of Eliezer, and who will be the model priest for Israel going forward because of his zealotry for the Lord, takes matters into his own hands spearing both of these people, showing that no one is above the covenant God made with Israel, that uh, it's not okay to worship and serve gods other than the God of Israel, no matter how important you are. Now, discerning which issues need a flexible approach and which issues require a more unyielding approach, that's challenging work. It's challenging work then and it's challenging work now. Sometimes Christians call these open-handed issues, issues that we can be okay with compromise, and close-handed issues, issues that we can't compromise. And when we hold behaviors and beliefs appropriately, that is what allows us to live up to our potential. And like Balaam prophesied about Israel, that's what allows the Lord our God to be with us. Now, despite these open and close-handed issues seeming like a moving target every day, they are worth trying to get right over and over again. And even when we fail, they're worth trying again and again. And it's hard. But things that are important, things that are worth doing, aren't always easy. In fact, they're very rarely easy. And this hard thing is worth doing. It's worth getting wrong, worth trying again with. 
Now that's all for Numbers 20 through 25. Next week, we're going to read Numbers 26 through 31. And uh, to prepare you, this text is a little bit less narrative and a little more technical than this last week's chapters. There's a census. There's some laws as part of it. Um, But we'll get back into the narrative soon. May God bless you in your reading of Scripture.